everyone. Welcome to In the Dark. We bring you industry travel knowledge and answers to your questions. This is episode five, and I'm your host, Alvin. In today's discussion, we get with Jay, a solutions architect. We break down his role and responsibilities and how it all ties in with IT and security. We also bring up topics such as how security began and how it has evolved through the ages. Hey, Jay, thank you for joining. Hey, Alvin, how are you doing? I am good. Uh, sorry about earlier. <laughs> Uh, Castbox cast was a hit and miss. I was still playing around with it, see if what else, um, what other features it has. So, yeah. Unfortunately, we won't be able to do the live cast. Um, this recording we'll have to do for now. That's all good. I'm still trying to get these settings on my microphone worked out. How do I, how do I sound on your end? Oh, you sound loud and clear to me. Okay. Cool. So, uh, how are you? How's everything? Oh, I'm doing well. Busy. Yeah. Cool, cool. Work, school, and the kids. Oh, man. That's, you never that's stop the, running. That's the life, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. All right. So, all right. So, where do we start? All right. So, so, I, so Jay, um, you're a solutions arch, architect, right? Yeah, the uh, solutions architect title uh, will mean different things depending on which organization you're in. Um, mm -hmm. Usually for what I do is uh, I'm a pre-sales, but mm -hmm. instead of like a sales engineer type role who mm -hmm. is just doing demo after demo, mm -hmm. um, my job is more strategic in which I go out, build, go to market strategies for different partners. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it just requires a lot more design really than technical understanding the ability to pitch and closing. Uh, got it. So I've, I've done some research on my end about a, the, the solutions architect uh, role. Um, I've seen a lot of IT related stuff in it. In it. Is, is that, part of the job or is that some some other related role well it's it's always going to vary by industry but yeah you know there's solutions mm -hmm. solutions architects for uh hvac all, all the way to it generally it's the biggest role is in doing design along with implementation mm -hmm. and translating functional business requirements mm -hmm. into usable architectures or different things like that got it so so if one uh, one person wanted that type of role, how how would he get such a fancy title like that to begin with? <laughs> um, yeah, I, honestly, I got to say most of the people that I've known that end up doing it never started out. You know, they didn't grow up and say, "I want to be a solutions architect." Uh, <laughs> realistically, they they kind of grow into the role out of a necessity. You know, you've mm -hmm. done. You know, if you've been a sales engineer for a while, you know, mm -hmm. you can either go up through management or whatnot, or if you really like, 
Yeah, it's a, it's a different animal. If you really like, you know, translating business requirements into different items and doing more mm-hmm. strategic design and everything, mm-hmm. that's really why, you know, people move into that role versus, mm-hmm. you know, just sticking with the demos, proof of concepts, closing business and everything like that. Yeah, got it. So how, how do you feel about your position now? Like, would you recommend this type of role to anyone? <laughs> Um, it, well, it, it's almost not really like a recommendation. I definitely do recommend security to everybody, Mm -hmm. but the nice thing about security is that there's so many different focuses. Yeah. Um, If you don't like one, you know, you can use your entire skill set and apply it to a different one. You just have to learn. It's almost like moving from different coding language for computer science, right? It's like, oh, yes, yes. oh, well, nobody wants to use Java anymore. I guess I'll go back groceries, right? That's just not something that happens. You know, you <laughs> adapt, end up, you know, learning the, the Python mm-hmm. taxonomy and, you know, mm-hmm. coding and everything like that. And you're, mm-hmm. you're on down the road. It's the same thing with security. You're like, oh, man, this, this application development portion is getting old. I think I'll go, I do identity or something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got it. So, you know, the, the, the business portion of being a solutions architect isn't necessarily for everybody. Just like, mm-hmm. you know, you can be really technical and you may not make a great sales engineer, right? You, mm-hmm. You're still... You know, there's the old thing about IT people, you know, lock them in the basement and just feed them under the door, right? Sales yeah. sales is kind of the crossover because you still have to be technical, understand, and be able mm-hmm. to convey a very technical subject matter to a range mm-hmm. of people that go from technical to um, I'm just the billing person. Uh, why yeah, do you need got this? Got it, got it. Yeah, so I I grew up via the support organization. So mm-hmm. you know, I was on, hey, this is broken. Please help me fix it kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really got to hone my customer service skills on mm-hmm. the support desk. And that's one of the things that's really let me bridge that over into the sales moniker is, you know, mm-hmm. I kind of approach sales from a customer service and customer mm-hmm. satisfaction portion. So that that's brought me a long way in my, in my sales career. And, Mm -hmm. you know, with that, that, that led me to the bridge between, you know, business requirements to Mm -hmm. technical requirements and marrying all that together. Mm -hmm. So I've spoke to a few other people before Um, I was, and they gave me quite a, quite some good insights about it. Um, A lot of people said that, tech support or IT related roles is pretty much at the end of the day is customer service because all you're doing is helping people, right? Yep. Yeah. It, yeah. It does even help desk customer service. You are helping people, but you know, it's a bit beyond the, you know, McDonald's, do you want fries with that? And then the please <laughs> thank you for Chick-fil-A. Um, you know, you ultimately, you still have to understand the technical side of it to be able mm-hmm. to respond to their problem. You mm-hmm. know, realistically, there are some larger support organizations out there that have that level one help desk that mm-hmm. the only thing they do is open the ticket and route it to the right queue, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> IBM. Um, but, you know, it, it is what it is that, you know, they have their place and, you know, they're the human touch behind getting that ticket open and get it routed mm-hmm. to the right place. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. I mean, I never had that that level one help desk role, but I've been in a help desk pretty much like probably a higher tier help desk. Yeah. And I gotta say, it's it's a totally different ballpark. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, yeah. I specifically called IBM out because I was at a help desk for a company that was purchased by IBM. So we got mm-hmm. to go through all of the transitions and everything between that. So uh, I kind of got to see how the sausage got made. Uh, So you got, you got to see both sides of the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, going back my, my first real job in it was actually for sprint back in late 1999 for a product Mm -hmm. called ion, which, you know, DSL help desks support in 99. Mm -hmm. I was kind of, you know, at, at the cutting edge of that time, but Mm-hmm. You know, I digress. Then all of DSL melted down 2000, 2001. So, mm-hmm. you know, onward and upward from that standpoint. Yeah. The, the, the funny thing is there's still a lot of businesses out there or, or DSL is still out there, I should say. I've, I've traveled around to some other businesses in some remote locations and, and the only type of internet service they have is DSL or some form of DSL at least. Well, I mean, it's still probably the most, one of the most deployed services, uh, at least AT&T and all new construction in mm-hmm. my area is all deploying, uh, you know, fiber to the actual home. I've got AT&T gigapower here and mm-hmm. I think they made that change over in 2010. So any new construction that's in a relatively metropolitan area is mm-hmm. most likely not getting copper installation anymore anyway. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad we're finally leaving that behind, but <laughs> let's, uh, let's not try to get into the regulatory problems as ISP land. Oh yeah. Yeah. That that's not our cup of tea or our <laughs> domain there. Nothing, nothing says great. Like we're here to help you and we're from the government. (laughs) Oh man, you only trust the government for, for so long before they start doing something to you. Yeah, we'll see the uh, SpaceX and Starlink will really shake up regulatory hurdles in the next two or three years. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right, so um, where were we before we got off topic? Um, Solutions Architect. Yeah, yes, yes, there we go. All right, so some of the other questions I have is, um, so you said you, you did some uh, designing or, or some developing before regarding uh, solutions or for like different companies, correct? Well, sort of. I ended up at, uh, at AT&T and... Mm-hmm. This was not a pre-sales role that I was functioning in. Mm-hmm. And like I didn't earn commission, but mm-hmm. I was working with deals prior to anybody inking a deal. And, you know, uh, for managed security service providers, uh, they usually have, you know, their services are labeled into boxes, right? If it fits, it ships in that one size box. And, you know, um, operationally, all of this is operationalized. If you can take it off Mm -hmm. the shelf, put it in the box and we can sell it today, no problems. 
AT&T mm -hmm. uh, is a different animal. You know, it's kind of, you know, part of their outsourcing agreements. You know, they may have a hundred million dollar outsourcing agreement that's over the course of three years, you know, mm -hmm. and security is 10 to $15 million of that. And not, nothing in a $15 million security outsourcing agreement fits in any off the shelf box ever. So, you know, they don't want to walk away from the whole outsourcing agreement and everything. So they're kind of like, hey, we need to find a way to be able to document and take this on. And mm -hmm. so the team that I was on was really kind of a part of that. And we would go through and either solution uh, new items that we do support that we could migrate mm -hmm. the customer over to uh, mm -hmm. as part of the outsourcing agreement or create policies and procedures to transfer those to operations so they could mm -hmm. operationalize onboarding of that customer. Yeah, got it. Yeah, so that was that was really my first foray into kind of the the pre-sales architecture process. So it was uh it, it was it was really good cuz I went from handling some really large customers on a support basis to mm -hmm. Uh, jumping in feet first with some of the largest, uh, you know, network or operationalized, mm -hmm. uh, you know, traffic requirements in the business. As part of that also helped uh, architect kind of their their global cloud-based firewall. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, thousands of customers, millions of endpoints. You know, mm -hmm. total total data throughput across the globe in excess mm -hmm. of, of you know hundreds of gigs. Oh wow. Wow. Well, that's, uh, that's pretty big. Yeah, it was definitely lots of, uh, fun problems to have. And <laughs> it's, it's really interesting because in, in my role, and I've largely worked with a lot of managed security service providers over mm -hmm. the part of 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, so I've worked with customers from, you know, seven to eight man dentist office. that will be on the mm -hmm. phone with doing a scoping call. Mm -hmm. And then I, I hang up with them and then pick up the phone and my next call is with, you know, 300,000 seat fortune 50 company. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's run the whole gamut. So, you know, seeing the requirements of the problems that small businesses have that, you know, mm -hmm. less than 50 seats and comparing those, you know, as the businesses scale up to hundred seats, 250, 500,000, mm -hmm. 2,000, 5,000, it, mm -hmm. every, every like rung of that ladder, each set of those customers have different operational requirements, different problems they're facing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, granted, you know, IT, how do you get everybody access? How do you operationalize mm -hmm. it? A subset of those are, are ingrained all throughout the whole, uh, mm -hmm the whole range. But, you know, realistically, you know, a hundred man shop is facing nowhere near the problems that somebody with like 10,000 users is. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Cause you know, by and large, the problems a hundred man shop is 10,000 man shops, just like throw a hundred thousand dollars at it and let's resolve this. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, that, that hundred man shop, their, their whole IT budget may be a hundred thousand dollars for technology and they, they just mm -hmm. can't solve problems in the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a, there's a huge budget difference in, in those, those numbers. Yeah. And, you know, even I've seen it in, in customers, you know, the, we'll call it the sub 100 customers. This is 80% mm -hmm. you know, of business in, Amer in America. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're going to range from, 
uh, how much they're going to spend on their security budget just because mm-hmm. you know, the owner may pay attention. And he's like, yeah, I, uh, if I walk in and all my computers are locked up, yeah, we're, we're out of business. And I've actually had some, some people that I know call me and be like, my entire business is shut down. What do I do? And yeah. you know, having, having to walk a personal fin- uh, friend through, you know, a crypto locker event that got his entire business is, is fairly painful. Oh man. So, so that guy pretty much had no security Im- implemented. That's what it sounded like. Well, it wasn't that they had no security implemented. It's uh, and in his case, it, it would have been mitigated nowhere near as bad had they done actual backups but he had he, he he's the business leader and he had an IT person that oh well you know we're just going to replicate and leave that online and count that as a backup and you know come yeah you know, not not actually doing risk reviews and understanding mm-hmm. what may happen from a security event if your mm-hmm. backups are online you know you may not have gone that way so mm-hmm. this was the case of an actual small enterprise uh, not appropriately looking at their risks and, mm-hmm. you know, disaster recoveries and implementing the proper procedures around uh, backups and restoration of services if an event happens. And mm-hmm. in that case, it was so much worse. Now, granted, the outcome is they ended up paying like an $80,000 ransom in Bitcoin to mm-hmm. get their business back. But it was either that or, or you know, uh, I think he's got 150 employees. It was tell 150 employees, be like, hey, sorry, we're out of business. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah, that that IT guy, is. There, there was only one IT guy or was there a team of it? It sounded like there was only one in that. Company. I, uh, <laughs> there, there were two people that I helped speak to, but I don't know their long-term outlook if they're still with the company, but... Uh, uh, I, I recommended that they they do need to assess you know overall risk and their oh, yeah. procedures after the fact, but uh, I don't know if he if he's still around. Hey, I mean people people do make mistakes. Uh, you know, a lot of the IT guys don't necessarily learn about risk. You know, he he may have been like, oh, we need to do backups. We'll just do this replication, mm-hmm. and he may have never thought about the risks of what happens if we do get breached. They crypto locker everything, and then mm-hmm. just delete the backups, right? Yeah. So you know, it's in a lot of cases you're quick to to blame people like that, but mm-hmm. without the understanding of, hey, what was the bill of goods that you sold me when I hired you? Uh, you listed all this security stuff, but you didn't know anything about risk or, or mitigating that, you know, when push mm-hmm. came to shove versus, Hey, I need somebody to just manage my IT. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the other thing to look at. I know everybody's quick to throw people under the bus, but you know, what ultimately what were they hired to do in the first place? Yeah. They, they make a bigger portion of that. And that's what a, a lot of the smaller companies really run into is mm-hmm. that they themselves don't understand the risk. So they run into a problem of hiring people that can understand the risk and convey that information in terms mm-hmm. that they understand. And this, you know, going back to functional business requirements, that's one mm-hmm. of the bigger things that solutions architects help with. Mm-hmm. So me specifically working in the managed managed provider realm mm-hmm. and you know, helping to translate the product the mm-hmm. product's value propositions mm-hmm. back into those different segments, whether small business, medium business, or different 
uh, different verticals that they can understand that story of, Hey, why is this important? Yeah. 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 I, I myself work for one of those smaller companies as well. I, I work in a team of three, um, for it. I'm one of those three. The other two are more senior. Um, but we all specialize in different things, you know, and, as much as security I want to put in my current company that I work for, there is just some things that that they value more that that they feel is more important than having more security. So it's security is a is a is a tough it's a tough thing to figure out because there's so much things you can do, but at the same time it can also affect other areas of, of your business as well. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's going to go back to the old uh, risk versus reward thing. You yes. Are, yes. You know, they may not value it, but it's the, uh, the cost proposition of hey, am I, am I going to spend $40,000 to secure a $20,000 asset? Yeah, exactly. Cause before, uh, security wasn't a big thing with them, right? Until the event happened a few months ago. Like, oh, they didn't feel like phishing or security awareness training was, was remotely important at all. They felt like everyone knew better. But when that happened, they're like, they were reaching out to me, like saying that, oh, we need to get this problem remediated as soon as possible. Uh, we need you to find a solution for this. I was like, I'll, I'll do what I can in this short time, but I can't promise you it's going to be the best right off the bat because any any equipment you buy right off right out of the box, there's going to be some major fine tuning you got to do to get it right where you want it. Yeah. And I can tell you, like, as far as security awareness training, I, uh, I get that there's a lot of stuff that is really, I don't know, there's different opinions on it, I guess is the easiest way to say it. And, yeah, yeah. you know, for all the mandatory trainings that I have to go to, like mm -hmm. as, as a security professional, they, I still have to do take training and everything. Mm -hmm. and, and I can tell you, there's not a bigger waste of time and resources at my company than putting a bunch of security engineers through security awareness training. <laughs> and yeah, but I mean, even, like even for the non-technical people that I work with, they yeah. are like, I'm just going to do this to the point where I can get through it because I don't care about this. Yeah. That that's the same issue we ran into as well. My, in my company, you know, like we got to do it in a way that they'll actually learn from it and, will actually prevent any other issues or or problems in the future. But there's that that border right there, you know, you gotta figure out that, that sweet spot to to actually get them to learn the process instead of just having them just go through it. <laughs> I I feel like we're gonna launch a product right now because you know we we've identified a need. Uh, <laughs> in that, you know, most people don't really like 
worthless training that they don't feel that they're getting any value out of, right? An individual, yeah. they're spending their time, which is uh -huh. their commodity, to mm -hmm. go and sit through this and they don't feel that they're getting value for doing it. So they either try to get through it as fast as possible, not learn anything, uh, this doesn't mm -hmm. apply to me, et cetera. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, specifically for email and paying attention to your documents and stuff like that, mm -hmm. the email standpoint about, about phishing is, mm -hmm. you know, the, these filters and everything, you know, they're not a hundred percent. So I, I feel yeah. like they could almost insert highlights and notes and be like, Hey, you know, we let this one go, but these are the keywords you should look at and you should really make a decision before you click on anything in here. Yeah. And exactly. I feel like with, with kind of color promptings and, and, you know, specific reminders inside mm -hmm. of an application, that person's going to be like, Oh, you know, Hey, now that you mentioned that, I'm not going to click on this link, but I'm going to call Tom and see if he sent this to me. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think the industry could get a lot more bang for its buck out of that than just forcing people through chain, training continually. Yeah. And along with that line, you know, there's, there's still that issue of people feeling like their time is more important than actual training, you know. They're well, and oftentimes it is, you know, especially if you're looking at – I like to roll back to small business because, you know, mm -hmm. again, they make up 80% of the businesses in America. Mm -hmm. so right. like, you know, if you think about it, let's say that you're a, you're a dentist and you own five dental practices and you employ 130 people, right? Yeah. You, you're, you don't have the hours in the day to send your employees to, to say training. And mm -hmm. not only that, your dental technician that may only use the computer in the span of updating records, et cetera, and doesn't mm -hmm. even really have a work email address, mm -hmm. gets zero value from that. So there are industries and businesses that just aren't going to do it at all, mm -hmm. but they would still receive value from different types of applications that they can implement to, you know, just elevate that user's um, curiosity about a, a potentially bad email that they've received. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that um that brings up the question as well, you know, like how well will will it do in that situation, you know? Even for those dentists and it's like they they always have downtime. Like I've we we've all been to the dentist before and whenever we're there they're they're not always doing something, you know. Yeah. With, with that, with the downtime while they're waiting for something, you know, doing doing some sort of training. Well, and that's the thing, like uh, that training is really more targeted to IT organizations where everybody mm -hmm. in the organization is using their computers 24 by 7 mm -hmm. and their computers are, are, are their money makers. Right. Versus mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the business, you know, a large majority um, IT isn't a primary function, it's mm -hmm. an ancillary function that just allows the business to be more efficient in the way that they do business, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, smaller businesses that may have 10, 15 employees could still technically function without that, but they're mm -hmm. going to be in a much more degraded state. Mm -hmm. 
So it's, you know, it's more of a poor gasoline on the fire is what IT is used for than being a functional part of the business. Now, granted, you know, there are, there's a couple of schools of thought that, you know, if you functionally weave IT into the basis of the business, it'll be even mm -hmm. more efficient if it's a functional part versus just mm -hmm. Larry. But, you know, that that doesn't really take off until you, you know, you have quite a few more employees rather than, you know, the five to 15 area. Mm -hmm. But definitely as the business grows beyond a certain point, no matter no matter what kind of business that you're functionally doing, Mm -hmm. um, IT does begin to be an integral part of, of the business. Yeah. Right. Cause I mean, realistically, I couldn't imagine running any business with more than 50 employees without a computer in this day and age. I mean, granted it was only 35 years ago that that actually happened, but mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it's mine. Like, yeah, I talk to my kids. They're like, what do you mean you didn't have cell phones? I'm like, yeah, we had pay phones. We actually had to keep change to call people. Yeah. It's the same deal. Like a typewriter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm pretty sure there's still pay phones around around here somewhere as well, you know, just little hidden spots with actual working pay phones. <laughs> so one of the benefits of being pre-sales is you often get to travel. And I have a global role, so I get to travel quite a bit. So uh, that's usually one of the things I actually try to find is pay phones. Mm -hmm. I have not found a working pay phone in like five years. Yeah. I mean, even, even like the airports, I thought I found one a couple of years ago, but the, the phone was gone, but it still looked like a phone booth. Ah, got it. So they just kept the aesthetics of it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they'd renovated it. Yet. It was an older airport. Uh, got it. But, you know, it's 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 funny. And, uh, you know, with blockchain and different items like that, yeah. you know, it's interesting to see how much we learn about technology at different ages. Right. When I was growing yeah. up, um, most people didn't learn about computers like until they were in college. And mm -hmm. you know, I, I started with computers around sixth grade. And, you know, learned and, you know, I, I guess mom always thought it was a waste of my time because I was playing games. You know, she didn't watch me the entire <laughs> time. Um, but, you know, that and that did. I got into networking because I, I didn't understand latency and ping and, you know, mm -hmm. why some people were able to totally own me in Half-Life back in the day. And <laughs> I, I really wanted to understand, you know, why some people were able to react faster. That pushed me to learn about latency, networking and what I could do to fix it. And that's what really launched my career in, in IT. It was, you know, mm -hmm. Half-Life. So. Thanks, oh, Valve Studios. Oh yeah, you could definitely thank Valve for half or Half Life for getting you started in IT, man. They probably owe you owe you something for that, <laughs> or you owe them. Something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man, I I remember starting uh, learning computers too at, at a younger age. Um, remember the first computer I. I, I jumped on was was uh, Windows Windows two thousand around there or Windows Millennium. <laughs> oh, I was still back in Windows ninety. God, I feel old, man. Yeah, I started 
You know, uh, <laughs> I think my mom had a corporate laptop that was Win Windows three or something. I can't remember which version it was, but I think the first computer I ever had was Windows ninety five. Oh, yeah, and you know, it's uh, I think the first ones that I had were store bought, and I started making my own. Mm-hmm. And then as I got older, I'm like, oh god, just making your own computer stuff is nonsense. And then uh, you know, I started buying them. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the uh, the lifespan of my computers have varied from like a couple of months to a year to I just mm-hmm. retired my previous Dell at the 10 year mark. And I actually went back mm-hmm. to building my own because I just happened to have a couple spare parts from hobby projects. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't think I'm going to build another one. I had the nostalgia <laughs> kind of gone. Yeah. Yeah. The thing about, Building PCs is that it's kind of on and off, you know, unless unless you're really into something like that, like building it and and you're really passionate about that, then that's probably not going to be a continuous thing, you know. I, I, I was the same, you know. I was building my own. And then at, at one point, I just got tired of it and just ended up buying a, a pre-built. Well, I think uh, security pretty much goes the same way with that. I mean, we've come a a, a long way, and mm-hmm. it's actually pretty funny to go back and look at how the attacks kind of mirror. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I guess security actually mirrors what the attacks look like, right? Yeah, yeah. Any antivirus was launched, you know, in the eighties to combat, you know, relatively small population of virus outbreaks. Mm-hmm. And you know, at the time, it's it was monumentally difficult to transfer files, and you'd get mm-hmm. infected, but you know, it would infect your whole computer system. It was still difficult. Mm-hmm. And then the nineties roll around, and you have a lot more people connected, but it's still really difficult to transfer viruses and everything. What about mm-hmm. you? But I certainly remember trying to upload five meg files on dial-up. Um, well, I, I was around dial-up at the time. <laughs> yeah, that was pain, painfully, yeah. very painful experience. So that's that's when the <laughs> that's when you know the land of the exploits happened, right? So oh yeah. And then that drove uh, internet security systems to launch with intrusion prevention, intrusion protection, mm-hmm. uh, NIDs, HIDs, etc. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as the industry started getting better and better and better at cutting down exploits, mm-hmm. you know, move to the advanced persistent threat. Like, hey, if we're going to we're going to get this through, we need to to be able to save it for as long as possible, get as much information as we can to be able mm-hmm. to, to monetize that. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, you know, everybody kept trying to hammer on you know, more IDS, more IPS, but mm-hmm. uh, you can't cover every, every threat vector with that. So yeah, exactly. FireEye and Mandiant come out, APT1 research, sandboxing, mm-hmm. being able to look at, you know, all your traffic mechanisms for beaconing, mm-hmm. et cetera, and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, with all those reports and the APTs, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what happens? They pivot and they need a, a, something new. And, mm-hmm. Crypto lockers start to rise in the early teens, right? Mm-hmm. So um, now you see CrowdStrike, Dave DeWalt, and FireEyes like we need to be able to respond in a matter of minutes, not like two hundred days. Mm-hmm. And then 
crypto lockers go through the roof uh, the mid part of this decade, 2015, 2016, 2017. Uh-huh. Uh, you see WannaCry, Petya, Not uh Wasted Locker, a little bit further on, mm-hmm. et cetera. And, you know, we, we have a, probably close to half a, half a trillion dollars in damage from crypto mm-hmm. lockers in the past eight years. And it wasn't till si- silence and then Sentinel One and then CrowdStrike mm-hmm. came out with machine learning to be able to be predictive prior mm-hmm. to the launch of that. Uh, you know, we, we need to respond or be protective before mm-hmm. it's ever launched, right? You know, mm-hmm. you can you can launch a piece of malware and have it take down a global enterprise in the span of three or four minutes. There is no mm-hmm. response to that. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you can respond instantaneously if you're already crypto blocker, the game's over. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's uh, the pivot back from being able to respond back to protection. You know, there's still places out there that say, oh, we do protection, but we have response. And then they'll focus most yeah. on response, right? And they'll, they'll yeah. leave protection on the wayside. I'm like, yeah, this this last 10 years didn't teach us a whole lot. <laughs> I feel like we're in the prohibition era. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's the thing, though. Security is a, still a learning process, you know? Some... Some people feel like it's needed and some feel like it, it's it's not needed. Oh man, that, that leads me to one to one of the two things that I, I tell all and I like to do a lot of capstone speaking for some of the local colleges. Mm-hmm. And usually, you know, one of the two questions that I have is I'm so glad I'm ready to graduate, I don't have to go to school anymore. And I'm like, Oh, you were so wrong. And then uh you know, I'll get to the next part two in a second is, you know, mm-hmm. what, what are the skills outside of security that I can work on to advance my career? But uh, going back to the first one mm-hmm. is I've been in the security industry for 20 years and mm-hmm. there's not a week that goes by that I don't learn something new. And yeah. you're like, well, I didn't learn anything this week. Um, you were on vacation. Mm hmm. So, you know, part part two of that, you know, at least for your undergrads out there, what mm-hmm. what are the top skills that you can pick up next to security? And uh, I think we've, I think we've talked about this in Discord specifically is um, selling is one business that every every single person on the planet is in the mm-hmm. business of selling. They just mm-hmm. don't realize that they are selling at the time that they sell something. Mm hmm. I don't care if you're a high school student trying to sell your mom on why she should really let you have a sleepover on a school night, but mm-hmm. that's a sale. The yeah. sale is not closed very often, but you know, you're, you're trying to sell something and you mm-hmm. know, whether you're trying to get a new job, convince your boss that you want to raise yeah. um, or trying to implement a project at work or get one of your mm-hmm. friends hired, everything's a sell. And if you approach mm-hmm. it like a sales with a sales methodology, you'll have mm-hmm. a much higher chance of being successful. Got it. Yeah, and that, that also goes back to, to marketing and branding. You, mm-hmm. you yourself are your best product. So one, mm-hmm. you should be an absolute rock star at being able to sell, market, and brand yourself. Yeah. And technically, I think you should do that before you ever leave school. So, you know, uh, I really like the WGU program, but none of the colleges I've ever looked at do a good job at preparing people to go out learning how to present themselves 
and mm -hmm. convince people that they should pay them an exorbitant amount of money because of all the value that they'll bring to the business. Yeah, and and I like to uh, put my two cents on that matter as well. I think it has to do with with the individuals as well. You know, they they believe that they um they know better or or they don't need the extra help or something. So they they totally avoid that part of the solution as well. You know, like oh, I can probably just get the job right graduating you know i can probably i don't know something yeah i, I wish i wish w, wgu needs to needs to track the number of people that say i'm going to graduate and be a CISO and compare it to the number of people that graduate and get a CISO job yeah yeah i mean i, I bet they are polar opposites oh yeah i mean <laughs> shooting for a CISO job right off the bat that's that's just insane in my opinion. I don't see that ever happening ever. ever. No. Ever, man. Maybe, maybe a, your your uncle's business where he goes, oh, yeah, you know, I'll give you the title, but that would be about it. <laughs> I mean, like, like, how would you feel if, if like, a 20-year-old got a CISO job or 18-year-old, you know, like, right off the bat, they just graduated college or high school and hey, they just I, got the job? I've seen some absolute rock stars uh, at the age of 20, 22, et cetera. So yeah. I'm by no means going to say an ageist that, hey, somebody that doesn't have the experience can't do this because they, mm -hmm. they absolutely can. And, you know, realistically, it, you've sold somebody on the fact that you can do that. You know, mm -hmm. now it's up to you to go through and, and follow through. So, mm -hmm. yeah. But those, those people are, are few and far between that do have that capability to do that. You know, it's just like the kids yeah. that graduate college at the age of 14. Like that wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> and there, those, there are some really smart people out there that can really do well, you know, at a, at a young age and they got to where they are now because, because of that, that intelligence, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's not even necessarily uh, about intelligence. Learning is a path methodology that, mm -hmm. you know, if you the, the biggest thing you can learn is an appropriate way to quickly adapt information and mm -hmm. internalize it and then be able to apply that in a, da a daily methodology. And mm -hmm. I, I struggled because. I have mild dyslexia and, you know, one of my daughters is severely dyslexic, thanks to me. But, um, you know, it was never diagnosed. And I was I was a terrible student all the way through m multiple attempts at passing college. Um, you know, ultimately, when I found WGU and was able to do self-study and everything, you know, it kind of turned the world upside down. Yeah. You know, and granted, being able to teach the classes was much easier on me as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, when I finally figured out that I need to, you know, get a system to learn how to learn. And then once I did that, you know, a lot of the other subjects, you know, mm -hmm. gelled for me too. math was always a struggle and everything. And, mm -hmm. you know, completed all the way through differential equations on the math portion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Math, math was pretty tough for me as well. And, and um, I have some, 
learning disability as well. Um, I won't say more learning disability, maybe just in general. Uh, I, I have was ADHD, you know, and that, that made learning tough for me during school. I was, I, I had terrible trouble with paying attention with anything or focusing at anything, you know. I'm, I'm still struggling as well here at WGU. It's, it's been a challenge, you know. I can pretty much focus for like an hour and then after that, I'll just start like paying attention to other things and like I'll tell myself, I'll just take a short break for like 15 minutes and that 15 minutes turns into like six hours of doing nothing. Yeah, you know, my, my daughter has the same thing and we have to help her adapt with that as well. So yeah. um, like for her, we usually do like breaks, but it's mm-hmm. not, hey, yeah, go play on your iPad for 15 minutes, right? It's, mm-hmm. hey, we're going to do a 15 minute break and we're going to go do some sit-ups and jumping jacks and mm-hmm. around. And it's not uh, an entertainment value break. It's just mm-hmm. a fine relaxing break. And mm-hmm. we do that, and then you know she she doesn't even miss a beat, and you know she's good for another forty five minutes to an hour. And yeah, having mm-hmm. to learn to help her cope has you know also done a, a lot of wonders for me. That mm-hmm. you know I pick up most of the tricks that we use for her, and I'm like, oh man, this this works amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's one of the benefits of being able to help other people. Yes, you you learn you learn in the process. And you grow from that as well. So Alvin, how long have you been in security or anything? Or are you just, you know, going through your degree to get that up or? Um, so I, I know a little bit about security when I first started IT, not so much. Um, so I started out as help desk for like maybe a year or two. And then I was kind of dropped into networking on my lap, like out of nowhere, you know, like, okay, so we need you to do this and, and we need you, we need your help. So I was like, okay, so I taught myself networking in the process and I was able to get into networking from that. But regarding security, I I only recently been in security for like probably a year or two. You know, that's when I really did like actual security related stuff, like firewalls and uh, and uh, incident response, that kind of thing, and log reading, uh, host hardening, stuff like that. That that all started like probably a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's really interesting because with security, I mean, unless you just graduated and, you know, I'm like, hey, yeah, I know about computers and I think I want to get into security. Mm Kind of like everybody almost has a different story of how they got into security, right? So um, mine, I had a networking background with voice over IP and I Mm -hmm. really hated voice over IP. This was the (laughs) pre-tip implementation MGCP, SGCP protocols, and absolutely mm-hmm. detested it and generally voice over IP customers. 
Uh, and I was like, oh, I got to get out of here. Uh, security, this looks like a great, a great gig. So I took mm -hmm. all my networking knowledge and said, all right, let's learn about networking security and then use that mm -hmm. bridge over and then learn more about endpoint application security and more about mm -hmm. risk. And, yeah. you know, talking with other people, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I was doing IT infrastructure and we had, you know, a breach or this or that or I had to learn about you know, the, the systems managements for our, you know, our semantic DLP or, or Sherman mm -hmm. suite or McAfee EPO and all of that. Mm -hmm. And then they came up through security through some type of systems operation or network or, oh yeah, our, our, I was doing it. I was a developer and, you know, I had to learn about application security and the guy in that mm -hmm. one. So, you know, there's, or, Hey, I was a risk officer. I didn't know, know anything about security, but you know, we, we looked at financial risk and insurance mm -hmm. and everything. And I really liked the security portion. Mm -hmm. So it, it's really neat to, to see and understand how different people entered the market. Cause I think mm -hmm. at least from a, a variant standpoint, way more people mm -hmm. in, getting in security, far different pathways than mm -hmm. anybody else enters any other field. Yeah. And that's, that's the great thing about security. Well, cause, because it applies to pretty much every job role. And that's what I believe. Cause even if you're a help desk, you're, you're still applying security one way or another. Or if you're a sales, you're still applying one way or another. It, it, it's, security is pretty much, a, it's pretty much an organization-wide kind of, kind of deal, you know? Each person has to deal with it in one way. And that's probably how most people get into security because I've, I've met a lot of people who are working on the business side and they got into security after that. It's like, it's, it's pretty interesting actually. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've ran across the gamut of, of college degrees in security from, you know, math, math majors to mm -hmm. political science to mm -hmm. a couple of history degrees out there that mm -hmm. have all ended up in, in security. And, you know, I'm talking like, you know, serious, uh, high end, uh, C level executives that ended up in security. Mm -hmm. you know, some, something happened in their daily life where they ended up managing this and really liked it and just kept following on with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, uh, probably like maybe people who are more business oriented, they probably land, uh, I, probably have an easier time landing a security role because they, they know both sides of the spectrum as well, you know? Well, I mean, ultimately, it really depends on where you want to go. Somebody with yeah. like an MBA or somebody with like a business a business degree that's getting a, a master's in cybersecurity or everything, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's different. That's going to be more on the risk or, or business side versus, you know, the technical mm -hmm. network or identity or something like that. Oh yeah. The technical um, side, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, you know, they're probably already in either the risk department or some other one and, you know, they're not going to have to crawl their way up through the help desk or everything, but mm -hmm. you know, Technically, you know, if they start off with an IT degree and you know, versus somebody that came up on help desk, you know, you may get a faster rise out of the help desk than the business side. It's just, uh, it's an interesting proposal. 
yeah of, of which way you want to go there yeah exactly and security is is pretty broad too you know there's different roles in security in itself yeah i i struggled i've been in security for 20 years but mm-hmm. i just completed my degrees you know last month mm-hmm. i'm like oh what do i do for a masters and there were three options that i was going to do and i couldn't decide which one to do mm-hmm. yeah ultimately i'm going to do my cyber cybersecurity and information assurance master but mm-hmm. purely for the fact that i can get it done really quick uh, <laughs> ultimately i will probably still do an either an mba or a masters in leadership but mm-hmm. you know with covid hanging around i think i may wait a year after I finished the cybersecurity one to see which way I want to go with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In other words, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> I, I think that applies to everyone. I don't <laughs> think anyone really knows what they want to do when they grow up. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting time, I, especially for you undergrads out there that are listening, you know, develop, mm-hmm. Don't know how long it, you plan on taking to graduate, but definitely mm-hmm. develop a, a plan that runs you five years out. Be like, hey, you know, this is what I want to do. I'm going to spend, you know, two months uh, doing help desk. And then this is the type of role that I want to proceed, uh, pursue. Mm-hmm. After. But, you know, definitely take it, write it down and then, mm-hmm. you know, go back and review it once a year. Be like, hey, I'm on track. Hey, you know, I've been in mm-hmm. job for 36 months what do I need to do to address that I'm not moving along and, you know, uh, modify that plan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's actually a great idea. I don't think a lot of people do that. You know, they just jump in like out, out of the blue, you know, thinking they like this type of thing and they want to pursue it. But once they get in, they don't know where to go. They're, they're, they're lost at sea pretty much. Yeah, having having that good guideline down and be like, all right, where 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 did I go and how did I get there? So uh, yeah. you know books, you know, it's it's kind of the old thing with self-help books, right? There's the mm-hmm. uh, the four E's or the four D's of execution, I believe is the name of the book, right? Mm-hmm. That's one thing. To have a goal, you have a you have to get to X by when. So, you know, a goal is also gonna have a time value with it. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, planning for the future. If you want to get X, you know, mm-hmm. have a time associated with getting X by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like an interesting book. Um, I might take a look at that as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm much more a fan of uh, Simon Sinek's books about start with why and uh, and. Man, that should be like freshman level, first class, read this book and let's discuss. Uh, I remember taking a similar class like that in high school. There was like a a class called Intro to High School. It was the most stupidest class ever, but but you, you do learn how to cope with with life pretty much. It teaches you how to cope with things, like how to handle certain situations, and um and um where to yeah pretty much that's all i remember how to handle certain situations i don't remember much from that that class 
Yeah. Well, you know, start with why is, you know, mm-hmm. why are you asking? And uh, I actually backed into this and in sales engineering, because one of the things like I, I teach people I'm training is I have a propensity to never say no uh, mm-hmm. when people are asking me questions. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and then, you know, I had a sales guy ask me one time, he's like, but our, our product functionally can't do what they're asking. Why don't you just say no and move on? And I'm like, because no is offensive to people you know, by and large. I'm like, he's asking me a question out of a need, but he doesn't understand the way we functionally built our product. So he's asking mm-hmm. it his frame of mind. I don't know what his frame of mind is. So if I ask him why he's asking for that, I'm asking for context around his thinking. You know, mm-hmm. we come together and I can understand his context to where he's coming from. I may be able to solve his problem in another way that he never thought about. So he may have asked his question in a different manner. And mm-hmm. that, you know, that right there has has blown people's minds because a lot of the sales guys that I work with have explained it to, and they're like, oh, I never thought about it that way. And then, mm-hmm. you know, after five, six different calls, they're like, oh my God, you know, you were so right. The the other guy would have just said no and moved on. And, you know, it, we wouldn't have connected with this guy. So mm-hmm. yeah, I've, I've rescued some deals that were just like on the way out. Like they've thrown the vendor out. They're like, no, this, this is done. We're over. I'm like, all right, just... Mm-hmm. Give me three days and we'll see where we go and, and pulled it, pulled it back from the brink. So mm-hmm. definitely, definitely start with why. Yeah. And that is the big question, isn't it? Um, knowing why can help solve a lot of things regarding whether job or life, right? Well, context is important. That's why data is the most valuable commodity in existence these days. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, it's, like I'm, I'm starting to suspect Google of resume farming at this point, based on some of the job wrecks that I've seen everywhere. <laughs> from, from a privacy standpoint, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of worried about ever applying at Google. I got Google sent you a, a job. No, it's uh, like if you go out on job, I mean, COVID exposed this more and more. Um, a lot mm-hmm. of the job wrecks that are out there don't mm-hmm. really exist or the company's on a hiring freeze. So even mm-hmm. if you apply for the job, you aren't going to get it. Oh, yeah. And what ends up happening is they're like, oh, we're just trying to build a bench of resumes for when we start hiring. I'm like, well, it's not exactly fair to the people that are applying for this and you know think they're being considered. And, uh, you know, I, I saw it. Google has a number of postings basically for the same job in every single city in America, just trying to get as many people to apply for them as possible, even though they may not really exist in that city. Mm-hmm. It's it's like they just shotgun the approach and hope they get as much resumes as they can. And then, you know, mm-hmm. they'll let the AI figure it out and call it a day. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess if you have you know, that kind of data analytics and everything, it, it can work. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't want to go off the rails with the last five minutes, so. It's okay, no worries. <laughs> it seems to be a habit on the podcast. It, it, it pretty much is, you know. Like, like I mentioned in, in the previous episodes, this is kind of casual, you know. We can go off topic if needed, you know, and then jump back right in after. 
it, it really depends on uh, who I'm talking to. Like, if if they want to stay on topic, we can. But if if they want to take a break from the topic, we can just branch off and discuss other topics as well. Yeah, freeform. Yeah, security architecture is not that deep anyway. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, so, uh, you know, you you have any deep and long-seated questions that you feel that you would really like to get answered by a, uh, an industry veteran at this point? Um, not particularly. Um, so I, I'm not sure if this applies to you, but do, do you deal with risk in any way? I'm, I'm sure you do, right? Oh, I mean, technically, we all deal with risk every day. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, in one shape, form, or fashion. Um, our, our brains are context engines, and so it's that mm -hmm. a lot of those calculations are actually shoved to the back and done automatically. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's it's back of the mind. So we've internalized those, so we don't actually have to you know, bring the risk scoring and think about it be like, Oh, well, mm -hmm. if I drive to the store, so many, so many accidents happens X amount of you know time from the home and everything, even though we should mm -hmm. be more cognizant of that. But, um, when you, you say, do you deal with risk? Do you mean like, am I doing risk analysis or, you know, et cetera. And in, in my job, I mainly deal with endpoint software. So mm -hmm. we're primarily looking at threat surface. So I'm counseling okay. partners and customers on, you know, how to minimize threat surface, the risk of not protecting or monitoring certain types of threat surface mm -hmm. and, and things like that. I uh, got it. Sorry, that, long winded answer to your question. No, that, that, that's fine. You know, that clarifies things a lot more, you know. Yeah, I think I think risk is along the lines of sales. We all do it. We just don't realize we're doing it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. A lot of us may not deal risk in in a big way in the, in the job environment, and some and some people do, but not but not everyone does that. So, do you have any uh, questions for me? No, I think I'm good. All right. Well, thank you, Jay, for coming on. Um, I really appreciate it. I had a, a a fun time talking to you. This was a good, a good, um, a good segment we got here. Yeah, Alvin. Hey, I appreciate the time, and uh, thanks for having me on, man. All right. Thanks, Jay. Hopefully, we can talk to you soon. Maybe on a future episode. <laughs> yeah, love to, man. Cool. Awesome. Talk to you soon, Jay. Yep. Later. All right. Bye. I just want to thank everybody here. I'd like to give a special shout out to Jay for coming on this evening. And I'd like to thank the audience for listening. We are five episodes strong and still going. Stay tuned, everyone, for our next episode of In the Dark. Thank you.